Welcome to Challenge of the Decade. Challenge of the Decade is a podcast series by FMO, the Dutch Entrepreneurial Development Bank, now celebrating its 50th anniversary. And this series is all about the challenges that lie ahead and the actions that need to be taken to reach the UN Sustainable Development Goals in the coming 10 years. My name is Jonathan Gruber. This show is all about energy transition. How can we provide everyone on the planet with clean, sustainable energy? That's right. I said everyone. So here's the stakes. The climate is changing so quickly that the World Bank says 100 million people may be pushed into poverty by 2030. It's still possible to stop this, but we have to change the way we create energy right now. So while investments need to be made to meet the ever hungrier need to consume energy in developing countries while actually reducing CO2 emissions, that's create more energy while reducing CO2. Now, to help me answer this question and many others, I have two guests. The first is George Birkering, co-founder of Climate Fund Managers. Hello, George. Hi. Good afternoon. And Marina Panikate. She's the manager energy at FMO. Hello, Marina. Hey, Jonathan. So, George, let me start off with you. You're the co-founder of Climate Fund Managers. Can you tell us just a bit about what it is you guys do and also what made you start the company? Okay. So um, after university, I started uh, at ABN Amro, an investment bank at the time. Um, and I got a little bit tired of the, at the time, myopic view of just uh, focusing on profits. And I missed the impact side of things. So after a little stint at the Ministry of Finance in the Netherlands, I worked for FMO, where it was really possible to combine impact and profitability. Uh, and um, in 2015, together with a couple of colleagues, we started Climate Fund Managers, which is a, a separate fund manager with the idea to scale scale up the uh, commercial finance for emerging markets, all with a view to do something good for climate change. Right. So, I mean, do you guys lend money? Is that what it is? Or do you do you get money together to fund projects? Is that how that works? So we raise capital from different sources, from governments, from development finance institutions, but primarily from the, from the uh, private sector uh, to invest in climate-relevant funds in emerging markets. We have a fund underway, Climate Investor One, which is purely focused on renewable energy, solar, wind, and hydro. And we're also now thinking of the second fund called Climate Investor 2. Okay, good. I'm going to ask you a lot more about that later in the show. But first, let me just turn to uh, Marina. Marina, how does one become manager energy? That's a good question, Jonathan. Um, I've been with FMO now for uh, 15 years. And before joining FMO, I was working for other companies and I realized that I actually wanted to make a change and an impact and this is what what I can do and what I'm doing uh, with FMO obviously together with a lot of uh, colleagues Um, and how do you become a manager well you better ask some other people (laughs) about that Um, but I'm enjoying enjoying it very much I'm responsible for a very professional team that is uh, involved in the development and financing of renewable energy projects uh, in Africa and sub-Saharan Africa 
and we work together to roll out the mandate of FMO, making a change and making impact. But FMO does a bunch of things, right? Not just energy. That's correct. So, so how did you get involved specifically in the energy part of things? Because uh, before joining the energy department that was established more than 10 years ago, I was already involved in infrastructure finance. This is this was kind of a natural uh, way to uh, grow into uh, to energy. Yeah, and. The other side to that is that I sincerely believe that access to energy creates economic development. Right. So you already had a, an, an interest in the topic, right? You did. The, it, did the topic come to you? Or did you come to the topic? The topic came to me. Ah. Yeah. It found me. It found you. Yeah. Are you glad where you landed? Definitely. Yeah. This is why I'm still there. So let's talk about the the magnitude, the urgency of the whole problem. We're talking about accelerating the energy transition. So let's just zoom out and uh, get an overview of the main issues that need to be dealt with before we look at the solutions. So as briefly as you can, work out to, for me, George, what you feel are uh, the biggest issues that need dealing with now. Okay, so... Um, in, at the moment, we're, we are fighting uh, a big crisis, which is called the CV-19 or the Corona crisis. And it's for obvious reasons, because it's very um, painful and, uh, and scary what's happening to the world at the moment. Um, but that there's also a much bigger crisis, uh, bigger because it's, it's, it's protracted over a longer period of time and potentially affecting more people in a more severe way, which is called the climate crisis. And I just hope, uh, and I think that's one of the reasons we're here today, is that we also don't forget about that climate and biodiversity diversity crisis that is looming um, um, and just uh, to make that concrete this year the greenhouse gases CO2 emissions are expected to drop by about 10% this year um, but in order to stay within the Paris Agreement um, and to keep temperatures rising within one and a half degrees we need to do this for the next 10 years which shows the magnitude uh, of the challenge that's ahead of us because 10 years is really short Plus, it's very, very short, but it's a long time to have similar disruptions as we're currently uh, feeling. Are there other issues that you feel are also really urgent that need to be dealt with right now? Corona is affecting many poor people, uh, but also the climate crisis will affect many poor people because it's the most vulnerable and the poorest that will be affected most by uh, areas that that we can no longer live in because of uh, too high temperatures or absence of water or too much water in certain places. Right. Okay. And are you? How are you at your? Uh how are you at Climate Fund Managers dealing with this kind of problem right now? Just very briefly, are you guys addressing this with uh, an approach or do you have funds set up? Yes. So the whole mission of Climate Fund Managers is to set up funds, to raise and invest funds in climate-relevant themes. That's all we do. So we attract funding from investors and we invest it in something that is good for the climate. Our first fund, we raised almost a billion dollars to invest in renewable energy. A billion dollars. Almost a billion dollars. That's, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. And it came from governments and development finance institutions, but also a lot from the private sector. So very often the private sector is concerned about the countries where Marine and I are investing in, like Uganda and Vietnam. But uh, in the right structure, and hopefully we can talk a little bit more about that, these places are investable, as we say it. Well, you know what? I'm going to ask Marina what she feels are the most urgent issues, and then I'm going to come back to you, Shorish. You could tell me exactly what you guys are doing. Give me some examples of the things you're working on. So, Marina, um, just can you tell me briefly what you feel are the most urgent issues that need dealing with right now? 
Well, coming from the energy angle, for us the most urgent issue is to create access to energy 100%, so to all the people in the world. And that's going to be a huge challenge. Uh, Wait, isn't that already the case? For sure not. Uh, At the moment, uh, over 800 million people have no access to energy at all. Like zero? Like no electricity? No electricity, nothing. So they live when the sun shines and they go to bed when the sun goes down. And uh, over 1 billion people have no reliable access to energy. So not throughout the day, only a couple of hours today or uh, per day or even less. So there's a big challenge, and that's so the 800 million represents 17% of the total world population. So we still have a lot to do. Um, so I, I see a challenge there, and our challenge, our our, our mandate is to create uh, sustainable, clean energy also in an affordable way to people that have no energy at all at the moment. And that's a big challenge. And now I'm going to ask you this just because I'm trying to provoke you, Marina, but can't these people just go and burn some coal or some wood the way we used to do it? (laughs) Well, it used to work like that, and it still (laughs) does, uh, I I can tell you. Uh, And it's very cheap. eh? You can just uh, get the charcoal from the wood and and you burn it and you have fire and you can cook. Excellent. What's the problem with that? Yeah, so the problem is uh, climate change, a big problem, as we just uh, heard from uh, Shores. The other problem is health. It has a huge impact on, on health of people when they cook on open fire. What do you mean by that, that it affects their health? So people are uh, making their food in huts uh, in the open fire and, and the smoke uh, is, is very unhealthy. So they're literally, they're not just getting general pollution, they're literally polluting the inside of their house. Yes, for sure. And then breathing in that smoke. Correct. Okay. Um, so, Shores, how do we actually do this? How do we accelerate the transition? So, what what is your global view of of what can be done mm. right now? So maybe it's interesting, Jonathan, to take a step uh, back first and see where drivers of growth and innovation used to come from, which is from the U.S. Uh, since the World War, they were the, the leading government for policy. Big oil, uh, the big oil companies uh, were driving economic growth through the production of, of oil and associated products. And also the financial sector is very, very big uh, and can drive with their funding uh, change. Uh, but we see inherently that they are um, uh, they are conservative and don't have much to gain, uh, perhaps, uh, from climate change, or they are divided, like in the United States. So perhaps there's three other anchors, and I believe those are three very interesting anchors to look at, which is, first of all, the EU, from a policy perspective, a climate change policy perspective, China, from a a bench uh, strength perspective, and thirdly, uh, big tech. So let me just unpack what you just said. What you started off with is to say that oil, big oil, was the innovator. But Big Oil said that was what the world did. Yeah? And what you're saying is that that is no longer the case? That's right. There are some forward-thinking or semi-forward-thinking institutions like Shell and BP that are trying to change their business model. But it's so difficult to to combine climate change with the, the use of fossil fuels. So that's not an easy task. And also the financial sector, it's so big and they're so risk-averse and we need quick action at scale now. And that really doesn't come together. And thirdly, you know how divided the U.S. is. Mm. Uh, so we cannot expect much from them. Uh, maybe with Biden a little bit, but from Trump, Trump certainly not. So we need to look at others. Okay, so you're saying that the, that that innovation is coming now from 
You say big tech? Absolutely. The intelligence and the data and, and, and uh, uh, AI is all coming from the five big tech companies in the United States. Okay, and in what way are they leading? What te- How are they making the change, in well, your opinion? They, they are changing in various fronts. Just to give a few examples, you know, internet sales. You know, people are no longer going to shops. They're going to the internet, and that's where they pr- uh, buy their products from Amazon. Or people increasingly go connecting on the internet through social media. But also, uh, they are using a lot of energy, um, and they're using more energy than all the cars use as energy in the world. And they go green. So when they go green, that has a massive impact. For example? Google, all their data centers in the world are fueled by renewable energy. Didn't I just read that Microsoft is opening up some kind of a a data center here in the Netherlands and the entire thing is going to be run on uh, wind turbines? Yes. The whole thing, right? That's right. And the locals were complaining because they didn't get some of the electricity? Yeah. They wanted this is an exact this is an example of the reverse of NIMBY because they wanted it in their backyard. <laughs> <laughs> Only yeah. they didn't get it. That's, yeah. yeah, that's funny. Yeah. Anyway, so those guys are leading. This is Absolutely. these are the people who are leading the way. How effective is that though? Because there's still a lot of internal combustion engines on the roads. Let's be honest. I think it's not changing quickly enough, um, but let us focus on the positive side. So Tesla currently is the most valuable car producer in the world. It used to be um, Toyota uh, and Volkswagen, but now Tesla. Uh, and we, you know, it went with ups and downs, but now the most valuable car company in the world. So it is definitely going in, in that direction, uh, and it it is here to stay. There's, it's, we cannot deny it. And you also mentioned the European Union as a, as a leader. In yes. what way are they the leader? Uh, well, they, they are leading from a policy uh, advocacy perspective. First of all, they were the first to set very ambitious goals. Uh, they want to have reduced their carbon emissions by 55% uh, in 2030. And in 2050, they want to be carbon neutral. But on top of that, uh, they, they, are, uh, they have implemented the largest amount of climate laws in the world. Uh, I was recently re- reading uh, um, a report on that. They counted the laws, and in the EU, it's, uh, it's the biggest amount, which says something. Seriously, Charge. And, and, and I'm, I, I'm, I mean, look, I'm interested in this topic anyway, because I'm hosting the show. But I'm asking really from a personal perspective now. Um, we hear a lot about things being done, but then people, of course, here in Europe are very critical. And it's hard to tell from an objective point of view or from an informed point of view, if it's really true, are things actually better in the European Union? Are we really headed in the right direction? Compared to what? Compared to, well, to where we need to be, compared to not being in the headed in the right direction. Well, I think the European... For me, it's quite... At this moment, it's quite difficult to criticize the European Union from a climate perspective. You know, they're setting the goals and also from a climate action perspective. Let me just give an example. But, But I mean, like, you're satisfied with the way things are going. Uh, in the EU, from yeah. a, from a legislation perspective, yeah. yes, I'm happy because there's no one that is doing it better at the moment. Look at China and the US, especially at the, in the US. There, th- things are abominable. There, you know, the, yeah. the current administration is 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 promoting the coal industry f- 
for crying out loud. You know? <laughs> yes. So, and so you were about to give an example and I interrupted you. Yeah, so I was, I was making the point that the European Union is really at the forefront of climate policy uh, and not just from a uh, legislation perspective but also NGOs in the Netherlands and in Belgium are taking their, their governments to court to force them to do more. So the current government has been taken to court by Dutch Urgenda and in three court rounds, including appeals, uh, the court said, yes, Urgenda, you're right, that the Dutch government is not doing enough in terms of climate change. And what is Urgenda? Urgenda is, an, is a Dutch NGO, um, a climate policy NGO. Right. Okay. Yes. So, Marina, you work for a bank. Mm-hmm. And before we were talking about uh, the fact that what percentage of the world has no access to electricity? 17. 17%. 17%. So how do we get these people powered up, if you can put it that way, without actually adding greenhouse gas emissions to the problem, right? Because first we were talking about burning uh, wood and we were talking about burning coal. So we want to give these people, we want to get them to stop doing that, but we want to give them just electricity. How do we do that without adding to the problem? Yeah, so um, we will partly be adding to the problem. So partly oh. <laughs> we will solve it by, you know, replacing kerosene and charcoal and all the other dirty stuff by renewable energy. So that will be partly uh, a solution to that. But uh, obviously by creating access to energy, we create all also economic development in those countries. And they want to move on as well, like we like we want to and like we did. So I think we will all need to be part of the solution. Us in the developed world, with our energy usage, we should focus much more also on energy efficiency. And we need to help uh, the emerging markets by being more smart than we were. And I think they can do that. And we have the technology to also do that, like uh, uh, Schurz was saying. And and we need, on top of that, the the big funding, uh, the big amounts to actually be able to do that. How much? Well, estimates range uh, between 7 billion to 11 billion to 22 billion. But what exactly are we going to do with that money? Once we get that money, let's say in the in the you get your druthers, as the expression goes, and that money turns up and people are like, yes, we have to listen to Marina and we have to absolutely give her all the money she needs to invest in projects. What are you going to do with it? So we're going to invest in in clean, uh, renewable energy, and obviously not only in energy, right? Uh, Water is another important uh, sector to invest in, uh, and there are many more. But access to clean, renewable energy will take people to the next level and will also help them to to do their bit in making this uh, a better world. For example... And where I'm coming from and what we're doing currently within FMO is we invest in larger and small-scale energy projects. So an example of a large-scale project is, for example, uh, uh, a 300-megawatt wind project in the northern part of Kenya that's now operational for two years. And that creates uh, extra energy for uh, uh, 400,000 households, 200 million people approximately. Another That's example. a lot of people. That's a lot of people. And you worked on that personally? Uh, and I've unfortunately not done that personally. <laughs> <laughs> but FMO was heavy, heavily involved together with a lot of other uh, uh, development banks. Uh, 
So that, that, that is needed. The scale is needed. But also the smaller scale is, is needed. And an, an example of smaller scale is a company that we financed, uh, MCOPA. Uh, they are active in Kenya and Uganda. And they've already created access to, to uh, uh, energy, clean energy, to 10 million people over time. So small scale, large scale, both is needed. Money is needed, but not only money, uh, I believe. You also need technology development, and uh, you also need the local governments to facilitate private sector uh, financing in their countries. So I I fully agree with you, Marina, that uh, impact can be um, generated and is generated by access to energy and reaching the poor people, and we should definitely do that. But I I resist the view that this is the only impact that we can generate. There's another way to do that, which is by scaling up and uh, creating as much greenhouse gas uh, reduction as possible. So sometimes it means that a, a, sm- a small project w- will um, reach the, sm- uh, the poor people, but at the same time it's also f- just small from a greenhouse gas perspective. And I think with the uh, scarce funding that we have, we need to uh, reach and get the biggest bang for our buck. Uh, and that dilemma I think we need to recognize. Mm. No, I agree with you. This is a dilemma, right? Because we, we want to create impact as a bank and we create a lot of impact also with these small-scale projects and and reaching the bottom of the pyramid, the the poorest people. Um, But I also see that as as a catalyzer to, in the end, create scale, because you have to start somewhere. It's it's good to to raise capital, to raise money, because it's very much needed, because governments will not be able themselves to reach the 100% access to, uh, to energy by themselves. They need private sector capital to, to enable uh, them to do that. But at the same time, we also need to try things on the ground. Because what, can you, what kind of situation are you in? You have a lot of money, but then you can't use it because you don't know how. And the how is now being done also on a small scale, but also on a bigger scale by us. So I, I totally agree with you that we need large scale to also uh, contest uh, climate change. But we have to start somewhere and we have to try things because we also make mistakes and we learn from our mistakes. And And this way you also get this technology effect that is also very much needed. What do you think, Shosh? You happy with that answer? You are looking very skeptical. Yeah. <laughs> I would have to say, Marina Shorsh is not all that happy with that answer. I, I know. <laughs> I, I can see that too. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think you. I mean, can I just interrupt here and yeah. say that I think if I could, if, if I interpret what you're both saying, because I, in, in, I, I mean, look, it's my job to be even-handed here, but at the same time, I kind of see where you both are coming from because you're saying, Shorsh, uh, no, guys, we got to go big or go home because you're not going to solve anything with teeny little projects. But what you're saying, Marina, is yeah, we also want to go big, but uh, big takes time. We're going to start with doing something right now, and that means going small. Do you see? Do you see what we're talking about I, here? I do so see it's, that. it's not. So you're saying one or the other, and she's saying no, both. True, but the the problem is, Jonathan, is that we don't have the time. We have eight to ten years, and then we're locked into a, a two degrees plus scenario. Right. And then the poor people will suffer from that the most. So I don't disagree with Marina. I'm just concerned that we're wasting valuable human resources and investment resources, where it can also lead to skill. And if Marina uh, is, tr- you know, if it's if it's true that we will reach skill, then that's great. But if it doesn't, then I think we we may have wasted wasted an opportunity. Yeah, I, I tend to disagree with you, uh, Shors. I my my point of view is indeed 
that uh, there are many ways uh, that we should be able to reach uh, the, the goal, uh, maybe not in 2030, but hopefully shortly uh, thereafter. And I, I firmly believe that what we're doing also contributes to that and that, and that it should lead to scale. Because it doesn't make sense to raise capital if you don't have any way to spend it. What I'd like to ask you both is, is, uh, uh, is I'm looking for examples of the kinds of things that you guys are working on, like really practical. So in a sense, what I'm asking you is, it's kind of weird, but when you were traveling around and dealing with certain projects uh, in a different non-COVID world, and you were out there seeing things with your own eyes, what were the kinds of things that you were seeing and working on that can give us all hope? that it's heading in the right direction. Uh, let's start with you, Marina, again. Yeah, I was, uh, which is more than a year ago, almost two years ago in Ethiopia, and there we visited a family uh, with six cows. They used the manure and they put it in a, in a concrete uh, box, in fact, to, to make it a bit simple. And in that box, uh, gas was created. And they used the gas to fire lamps, and they used the gas for cooking. What comes out of the box, what is left of the manure, they put on the land. And the, the, the lady showed us what it did. And the land where the manure, the, the rest, or the remainder of the manure was put on, the, the maize was growing much better than on the piece of land where it, it wasn't put on. So it, it, was, it was a very striking and a very nice example of how uh, clean energy uh, can make uh, a, a life much better. Do you guys work on projects that have to do with solar? We do a lot of projects. Most of the projects that we do uh, have to do with uh, with solar. And one other example I, get, uh, I can give is uh, I was with a family and it was in Uganda. And that family was using kerosene light before in, in their homes. But they bought a solar lamp uh, with, a, with a small panel on the roof. And that lamp could burn now uh, almost uh, ten, 10 hours. And the, 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 the husband showed me the difference between the, the light given by the lamp, created by the lamp, and by kerosene. And it was a world of difference. And it means, in fact, that uh, children can, can study by light because studying by a kerosene lamp is almost impossible. So the, the life of these people changed dramatically having this light and, and having energy because they also had their family uh, a television, news television hour, 8 o'clock. Then the lamp went down a bit because you can only use it once, uh, so to say, in, in that system. And they watched the news together. So, yeah, it created for them also some quality time with the family. That's very interesting that being able to watch TV is... My mom always said, stop watching TV. That's not quality time. <laughs> it's, it's a different world there. It's a different yeah, world. No, definitely. but of course, I understand exactly what you mean. It's kind of... A, it's a miracle, isn't it? It is. It's it a miracle. Is. And of course, by doing it that way, they are not adding to the greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. Exactly, exactly. And I, I also want to give you another example. This is not an example from, from a personal uh, experience, but it's, it's a story, and it's a story about a lady that also bought a lamp and a solar, solar panel. She didn't use the lamp in her own house. She used it in her chicken farm because she knew if the chickens have more light during a longer period, they lay more eggs. 
and she could sell the eggs. So her income went up because of the because of the light. It's the little things that matter, George. You see, I think she's making a good point. But actually, the, the, the <laughs> I just wanted to see your reaction. But, uh, but, I, but the truth be told, I wanted to ask you also an example of the kind of thing in the pre-COVID world that you were going out and looking at and saying to yourself, you see, this is what it's all about. Yes. So um, an example that I'd like to give is, uh, is two wind farms that we're building in Vietnam. Um, a 78 megawatts and a 138 megawatts wind farm. We're building that very close to the biggest coal-fired power plant in the in Asia, uh, a 1.2 uh, gigawatt power plant. You can always consider that a token of uh, of protest against uh, climate change. <laughs> I was about to say, is this? Are you doing it just to be ironic? <laughs> no, I think because I th- what I what I, um, um, what I what I think is encouraging is that the, the the cost of of wind and 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 solar power has come down tremendously over the last five to ten years. So I think that's that's worth mentioning. And it is out uh, competing uh, fossil fuels. So that's something to take hope from. Another thing I'd like to mention, Jonathan, is uh, the third anchor that we talked about previously in, in sort of global climate change. I, I mentioned uh, big tech. I mentioned the European Union as, as driver for policy. But there's a third anchor that we should also watch, which is China. China hosts the largest amount of coal-fired power station. In fact, it's around 250 gigawatts, which is larger than the U.S., which is around 230 gigawatts. They also have overtaken the U.S. in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. They they are uh, uh, it's twice as big as what the what the Americans are not, emitting. Not per capita, but as a nation, you mean? Right? Uh, a, yeah, absolutely, okay. as a nation. That's a good correction. Yeah. Um, but they've also said that by 2060, they want to be CO2 neutral. Um, so that's in 40 years from now. And that's probably the best piece of news that we've heard in a decade. Because uh, that means that, uh, that, that the Paris Agreement still has a chance of being successfully implemented. Right. Okay. So we were talking about projects in in the developing world in particular, and we're pushing sustainable energy for absolutely everyone on the planet. But isn't this a little unfair? Uh, Because when you're poor, your energy needs are immediate. And here we are in the West. We've burned all the carbon we could possibly get our hands on. We created the situation that we're in. And so now we go over to these people and we say, oh, by the way, don't take that carbon out of the ground and burn it. Um, Isn't it a little unfair to demand this kind of change on people who really can't afford it? Let's go to you, Shorsh. So um, it used to be like that. When solar and wind per kilowatt hour were so uh, much more expensive than coal and other fossil fuels, uh, that used to be the case. But now we are in a, in a slightly more fortunate position that we can offer them competitive renewable energy power. Um, and, and, and let's do that. Let's, uh, let's invest in renewable power so we can indeed give them the electricity that they need, but at the same time do it in conjunction with a clean and a cleaner planet. So for you, you're like, okay, we can't ask this of people because it's actually cheaper to get them to be renewable. In, in certain places, absolutely, yes. Okay. And Marina, are you confronted with people ever saying things to you like, why do you keep making us have solar panels and create gas out of manure? D- didn't you guys? <laughs> it's not a joke, though. I mean, I'm laughing, no, but it's not a joke. No, no, yeah. Do people ever say that to you? No, no, uh, they don't. They're actually so happy that they have access to energy in an affordable way. 
It's 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 a non-issue. I I totally agree with uh, Shores that uh, prices of renewable energy, especially uh, solar energy and wind energy, have come down tremendously. And I can put some figures to that. So in 10 years, uh, solar energy uh, became 80% cheaper, from 37 dollar cents per uh, kilowatt hour to six something dollar cents per kilowatt hour. So it has become much more affordable. For wind, prices came down not that much, but also 40%. Uh, and it's coming down uh, as 40% we speak. is a lot. It's, it's, not, it's not 80%, but it's still a lot. No, definitely. I, I agree with that. Yeah. So in that sense, it has become much more affordable. Where we still have to find solutions is that uh, the people that we're targeting cannot just pay... $25 for uh, a small renewable energy system. Because even that's a lot, right? Even that is already a lot of money, yeah. <laughs> so what we need to do is create finance solutions for that. So they pay something up front, and the remainder they can pay over time in two or three years. And, and this works, you've actually done this, and, and people pay it back. This works, we've actually done it, and most of the people pay back. You always have people <laughs> that can't pay. Yeah, because you're also dependent uh, on farmers and and they are dependent on yields, right? And if the yield in a certain year is not so good, then they don't have income. And yeah, another solution needs to be found. But that's part of normal life, I would say. And let's also stop this myth that fossil fuels are cheap. Right? Very often, as Marina said, uh, in, in emerging markets, um, electricity is not reliable. So they have gensets as a backup uh, when the main system falls down. And that's very expensive, up to 30, 40 uh, cents per kilowatt hour. So fossil fuels can be very, very expensive. And also there's another myth, Jonathan, that's very often mentioned, which is that renewables are heavily subsidized. Well, that is, you know, uh, as Marina said, that's no longer needed because of the the, the, the technology costs have come down. And also fossil fuels are very heavily subsidized from a tax perspective, for example. So uh, let's also uh, be honest about that myth. Where do we go from here? I mean, there's an energy crisis. That is also a climate crisis. This is clear. And there's a COVID crisis, which we mentioned at the beginning of the show is creating a financial crisis. So what has to happen, given all of this, right now, to get that energy transition we're talking about going so that the world is a different place in 10 years. So for me, climate change is is includes, definitely includes renewable energy and a transition to clean energy, but it's more than that. We're also faced with a water crisis, yeah? So a changing climate means too much water in the wrong places and too little water in other places. Um, and uh, it will mean that billions of people, many poor people, will live in areas which are either too hot to live in, but also that they don't have enough water. The United Nations have said that every citizen needs about 50 to 100 liters of water per day. That's just a few toilet flushes, right? And that's, we know that this is under severe pressure. Uh, we also know that of all the available water in the world, only 1%. Uh, is uh, fresh and not frozen. And about half of that is available through rivers and lakes. So a half percent of all the water on the planet is used for everything, for all citizens, for all agricultural activities, and for all industrial purposes. So it's something that we need to cherish and also focus on going forward. So for me, climate change is, yes, let's scale up in uh, the uh, electrification for clean energy, but also adapt to a changing climate, which means let's 
focus on water, waste and oceans. And the COVID crisis exacerbates this issue uh, of the need for clean uh, uh, and safe water. Okay, and Marina? For me, the, 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 the one thing that comes up is, is partnerships. I think we should much more work together as, as governments, as policymakers, as uh, entrepreneurs on the ground to, to actually tra- make that transition happen and make that transition happen in a more fast way. Without that, we, we can't make it happen. It's the expression goes, uh, we must all stand together because otherwise we will all surely fall together. Yeah. 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 So we've talked about a lot of things that need to happen in the world, a lot of things that are will be terrible if they don't happen in the world. Uh, we've had a few scary things. Let's talk about what's got you excited. What's happening right now in the world where you look at that and you think to yourself, yes, that's what we need to do. That's great. It's a good question. Yeah, Don't you yeah, think it's, it's a, a good very question? Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, I talk God, about- you people are so pessimistic. <laughs> That's it. I'm leaving. <laughs> well, you talked about technology. That would be a nice ending. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You talked about technology, right? I already talked about the three things, the three developments that are give. They're not hopeful. I already told you that, right? So I, otherwise, I'm going to repeat. But that's sort of a, a, in the background stuff that's going on. You know, I talked about the EU. I talked about China. I talked about the big tech. So that's mm-hmm. all the, But when you talk concretely about technology, what I'm, what gives me, uh, what I think is very nice to put it that way, is that we're, that we're, um, we're now relying so much on technology to connect. Before, there was a lot of pressure always to jump on a plane and go meet somewhere on a conference. We're really changing the world through this COVID-19 crisis. We're just, it's acceptable to, to connect, to, to, to negotiate, to discuss, to disagree over MS Teams and over Zoom. Whereas before it was so inefficient, I think we always had to go meet somewhere because we also valued uh, the, the, you know, the fact that we could connect physically. And I think we have disrupted now this uh, phenomenon of always physically being together and we can do that now through technology. And I think it's, it's not going to go back and including the working from home there was always a lot of resistance to work from home uh, in certain companies we're at home and we're running this company and our business from home and we can and and, and i don't think that ever will ever change anymore uh, again yeah i just read an article just this morning that the air in london is the best it's been in there you de- go. decades maybe four decades yeah, yeah. and you marina <laughs> anything got you excited <laughs> Now, yeah, it, it, it's a bit aligned with what uh, Schurz is saying, that uh, we have discovered, because of COVID, that so much more is possible through a screen uh, that that will never go away. That, that gets me excited. At the same time, and this is where I'm a bit more pessimistic, uh, maybe, it doesn't replace the human contact. So I like working from home, but I also like to work from the office, and I want to find a balance there, and that, that's important for me. But maybe something to to add, uh, Jonathan. What gets me really excited is the the commitment and the drive and the optimism of the entrepreneurs that we're working with. Because they are on the ground and they are uh, every day confronted with also COVID in the emerging markets and what it does to their projects in terms of construction and operations. And And what I notice when we have them on the phone or uh, on a screen is that they they have so much drive to make it happen. And that encourages me on a daily basis. 
Excellent. So, Shorsh, that's what keeps her going. What keeps you going? Climate finance gives me purpose. I know of finance. Um, and we also know that climate change is the, the challenge of our times. Um, and, and this is how I can make a contribution and look my kids into the eyes when they're asking me where I was when we set the earth on fire. That's Very dramatic, Shosh. Yes. <laughs> Is the Earth on fire? It, Shall well, we say it that way? Yes. We are increasing uh, the temperature of the Earth, uh, and and we and it, it doesn't. It is not able to control that. And I'll just give an example why that is. So. Everything that we see happening around us in terms of hectares being... Um, everything that we see around us in terms of the fires in California and Australia, uh, the, the billions of animals that are losing their lives because of that, that's the result of emissions up until uh, 1980 because it, the Earth has a lag effect. It's like comparing your house when you're returning from your Christmas break. It takes a few uh, days to warm up your house again. That's, that's that lag effect that also applies to the Earth. Yeah, so the... All the emissions from 1980 until 2020, they're still ahead of us. So if you're scared by what you see on the news in California and Australia, you know. And now, Shorsh and Marina, here's a thing I'd like you to do. Um, imagine the listener is sitting in their car. What I want you to do is tell them directly, hey, listener, if you want to help, here's this one thing that you can do today. I think, firstly, be on the good side of history. Yeah, uh, and recognize that there is a serious crisis, a climate crisis in a way, and look for a role where you can contribute to that. Ideally big, but also small things are fine, you know? Every small change to a less bad climate crisis is, is worth doing. There, you see Marina? He does like the small things. Yeah, fortunately. It, it, took, it took a while, uh, Shush, but uh, We got you there. I, yes. I got you convinced. Uh, yes, thanks for absolutely. that. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and you took a bit the words out of my mouth. I think everybody... Don't think I don't have any influence or any impact on what's happening in the world, but rather think what can I do on a very small scale in my day-to-day -day life? What can I contribute as a person to a better climate and a better world. And that was our show. Many thanks to my guest, Joris Berkering, the co-founder of Climate Fund Managers, and Menina Panikate, the manager energy at FMO. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks, Jonathan. This is a new podcast, and we're dying to know what you made of it. And you can do this by rating us and leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. And you knew this was coming. Don't forget to subscribe. I mean, you can hear The Challenge of the Decade on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on our website, future-minded.fmo.nl, future-minded.fmo.nl. This has been Challenge of the Decade. My name is Jonathan Goubert. Have a challenging week.